Part 1, Chapter 13 of The Patrician by John Galsworthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Part 1, Chapter 13. Thanks to Lady Valleys, a patroness of birds, no owl was ever shot on the Monkland Court estate, and those soft flying spirits of the dusk hooted and hunted to the great benefit of all except the creeping voles. By every farm, cottage, and field, they passed invisible, quartering the dark air. Their voyages of discovery stretched up onto the moor as far as the wild stone man, whose origin their wisdom perhaps knew. Round Audrey Knoll's cottage they were as thick as thieves, for they had just there two habitations in a long, old, holly-grown wall, and almost seeming to be guarding the mistress of that thatched dwelling, so numerous were their fluttering rushes, so tenderly prolonged their soft sentinel callings. Now that the weather was really warm, so that joy of life was in the voles, they found those succulent creatures of an extraordinarily pleasant flavour, and on them each pair was bringing up a family of exceptionally fine little owls, very solemn, with big heads, bright large eyes, and wings as yet only able to fly downwards. There was scarcely any hour from noon of the day, for some of them had horns, to the small sweet hours when no one heard them, that they forgot to salute the very large, quiet, wingless owl whom they could espy moving about by day above their mouse-runs, or preening her white and sometimes blue and sometimes grey feathers morning and evening in a large square hole high up in the front wall. And they could not understand at all why no swift depredating graces nor any habit of long soft hooting belonged to that ladybird. On the evening of the day when she received that early morning call, as soon as dusk had fallen, wrapped in a long, thin cloak with black lace over her dark hair, Audrey Knoll herself fluttered out into the lanes as if to join the grave-winged hunters of the invisible night. Those far, continual sounds, not stilled in the country till long after the sun dies, had but just ceased from haunting the air, where the little may scent clung as close as fragrance clings to a woman's robe. There was just the barking of a dog, the boom of migrating chafers, the song of the stream and of the owls, to proclaim the beating in the heart of this sweet night. Nor was there any light by which night's face could be seen. It was hidden, anonymous, so that when a lamp in a cottage threw a blink over the opposite bank, it was as if some wandering painter had wrought a picture of stones and leaves on the black air, framed it in purple, and left it hanging. Yet, if it could only have been come at, the night was as full of emotion as this woman who wandered, shrinking away against the banks if anyone passed, stopping to cool her hot face with the dew on the ferns, walking swiftly to console her warm heart. Anonymous knight, seeking for a symbol, could have found none better than this errant figure, to express its hidden longings, the fluttering, unseen rushes of its dark wings, and all its secret passion of revolt against its own anonymity. At Monkland Court, save for little Anne, the morning passed but dumbly, everyone feeling that something must be done, and no one knowing what. At lunch, the only allusion to the situation had been Harbinger's inquiry, When does Milton return? He had wired, it seemed, to say that he was motoring down that night. The sooner the better, Sir William murmured. We have still a fortnight. But all that felt from the tone in which he spoke these words, 
how serious was the position in the eyes of that experienced campaigner. What with the collapse of the war scare and this canard about Mrs. Knoll, there was indeed cause for alarm. The afternoon post brought a letter from Lord Valley's marked Express. Lady Valley's opened it with a slight grimace, which deepened as she read. Her handsome, florid face wore an expression of sadness seldom seen there. There was, in fact, more than a touch of dignity in her reception of the unpalatable news. Eustace declares his intention of marrying this Mrs. Knoll, so ran her husband's letter. I know, unfortunately, of no way in which I can prevent him. If you can discover legitimate means of dissuasion, it would be well to use them. My dear, it's the very devil. It was the very devil. For if Milton had already made up his mind to marry her, without knowledge of the malicious rumour, what would not be his determination now? And the woman of the world rose up in Lady Valleys. This marriage must not come off. It was contrary to almost every instinct of one who was practical, not only by character, but by habit of life and training. Her warm and full-blooded nature had a sneaking sympathy with love and pleasure, and had she not been practical, she might have found this side of her a serious drawback to the main tenor of a life so much in view of the public eye. Her consciousness of this danger in her own case made her extremely alive to the risks of an undesirable connection, especially if it were a marriage, to any public man. At the same time, a mother-heart in her was stirred. Eustace had never been so deep in her affection as Bertie, still he was her first-born and in face of news which meant that he was lost to her, for this must indeed be the marriage of two minds, or whatever that quotation was, she felt strangely jealous of a woman who had won her son's love, when she herself had never won it. The aching of this jealousy gave her face for a moment almost a spiritual expression, then passed away into impatience. Why should he marry her? Things could be arranged. People spoke of it already as an illicit relationship. Well, then, let people have what they had invented. If the worst came to the worst, this was not the only constituency in England, and a dissolution could not be far off. Better anything than a marriage which would handicap him all his life. But would it be so great a handicap? After all, beauty counted for so much. If only her story were not so conspicuous. But what was her story? Not to know it was absurd. That was the worst of people who were not in society. It was so difficult to find out. And there rose in her that almost brutal resentment, which ferments very rapidly in those who from their youth up have been hedged round with the belief that they, and they alone, are the whole of the world. In this mood, Lady Vadis passed the letter to her daughters. They read, and in turn handed it to Bertie, who in silence returned it to his mother. But that evening, in the billiard-room, having manoeuvred to get him to herself, Barbara said to Courtier, I wonder if you will answer me a question, Mr. Courtier. If I may, and can. Her low-cut dress was of yew-green, with little threads of flame-colour matching her hair, so that there was about her a splendour of darkness and whiteness and gold, almost dazzling. And she stood very still, leaning back against the lighter green of the billiard-table, grasping his edge so tightly that the smooth, strong backs of her hands quivered. 
We have just heard that Milton is going to ask Mrs. Knoll to marry him. People are never mysterious, are they, without good reason? I, I wanted you to tell me. Who is she? I don't think I quite grasped the situation, murmured Courtier. You said, to marry him? Seeing that she put out her hand, as if begging for the truth, he added, How can your brother marry her? She's married. Oh, I'd no idea you didn't know that much. We thought there was a divorce. The expression of which mention has been made, that peculiar, white-hot, sardonically jolly look, visited Courtier's face at once. Hoist with their own petard, the usual thing. Let a pretty woman live alone. The tongues of men will do the rest. It was not so bad as that, said Barbara dryly. They said she had divorced her husband. Caught out thus, characteristically riding past the hounds, Courtier bit his lips. You'd better hear the story now. Her father was a country parson and a friend of my father's, so that I've known her from a child. Stephen Lees Knoll was his curate. It was a snap marriage. She was only twenty and had met hardly any men. Her father was ill and wanted to see her settled before he died. Well, she found out almost directly, like a good many other people, that she'd made an utter mistake. Barbara came a little closer. What was the man like? Not bad in his way, but one of those narrow, conscientious, pig-headed fellows who make the most trying kind of husband bone egoistic. A parson of that type has no chance at all. Every mortal thing he has to do or say helps him to develop his worst points. The wife of a man like that's no better than a slave. She began to show the strain of it at last, though she's the sort who goes on till she snaps. It took him four years to realise. Then the question was, what were they to do? He's a very high churchman with all that feeling about marriage, but luckily his pride was wounded. Anyway, they separated two years ago, and there she is, left high and dry. People say it was her fault. She ought to have known her own mind. At twenty. She ought to have held on and hidden it up somewhere. Confound their thick-skinned, charitable souls. What do they know of how a sensitive woman suffers? Forgive me, Lady Barbara, I get hot over this. He was silent. Then, seeing her eyes fixed on him, went on. Her mother died when she was born, her father soon after her marriage. She's enough money of her own, luckily, to live on quietly. As for him, he's changed his parish and run to one somewhere in the Midlands. I'm sorry for the poor devil, too, of course. They never see each other, and so far as I know, they don't correspond. That, Lady Barbara, is the simple history. Barbara said, Thank you, and turned away, and he heard her mutter, What a shame! But he could not tell whether it was Mrs. Knoll's fate, or the husband's fate, or the thought of Milton that had moved her to those words. She puzzled him by her self-possession, so almost hard, her way of refusing to show feeling. Yet what a woman she would make if the drying curse of high-caste life were not allowed to stereotype and shrivel her, if enthusiasm were suffered to penetrate and fertilise her soul. She reminded him of a great tawny lily. He had a vision of her as that flower, floating, freed of roots and the mould of its cultivated soil, in the liberty of the impartial air. What a passionate and noble thing she might become! What radiance and perfume she would exhale! 
a spirit fleur-de-lis, sister to all the notable flowers of light that inhabited the wind. Leaning in the deep embrasure of his window, he looked at Anonymous Knight. He could hear the owl's hoots and feel a heart beating out there somewhere in the darkness, but there came no answer to his wondering. Would she, this great tawny lily of a girl, ever become unconscious of her environment, not in manner merely, but in the very soul, so that she might be just a woman, breathing, suffering, loving, and rejoicing with the poet soul of all mankind? Would she ever be capable of riding out with a little company of big hearts, naked of advantage? Courtier had not been inside a church for twenty years, having long felt that he must not enter the mosques of his country without putting off the shoes of freedom. But he read the Bible, considering it a very great poem. And the old words came haunting him. Verily I say unto you, it is harder for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And now, looking into the night, whose darkness he seemed to hold the answer to all secrets, he tried to read the riddle of this girl's future, with which there seemed to be interwoven that larger enigma, how far the spirit can free itself in this life from the matter that encompasseth. The knight whispered suddenly, and low down, as if rising from the sea, came the moon, dropping a wan robe of light till she gleamed out nude against the sky curtain. Night was no longer anonymous. There in the dusky garden the statue of Diana formed slowly before his eyes, and behind her, as it were her temple, rose the tall spire of the cypress tree. End of part one, chapter thirteen.